We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Third and final hour, Jimmy Sangenberger here with you. Always fun to be your own theme song, isn't it? Playing harmonica there with Biff Gore as we move into the end of today's show. What, like 10 days away or so from Election Day? I mean, it is it is stunning to think how time is flying by and we are just about there on November 7th. And this is, as we call it here on this program, the year of the school boards. We're all across the state. Parents are attuned to what's happening in schools. And that's why I've been spending a lot of time here on the program focusing on this, but especially as well in Denver. Because it is a school district that is not only the single largest district in the state of Colorado, not only the prime example of dysfunction in government that we are seeing in this state right now, but it's a school district that I have covered extensively for a few years, and there's a lot of change that could come. Somebody who is working to bring about that change, if you vote her in, is Kimberly Sia, who is running for District 1 in the Denver Public Schools Board of Education, and she joins me now here in studio on the Jimmy Sangenberger Show. Good morning, Kimberly. How are you? Thank you so much for having me today. Uh, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking some time. So let's just start right from the top. Who is Kimberly Sia? Why are you running for the DPS board? Sure. So I'm the mother of two girls. They attend school in DPS. They've gone to school there since kindergarten in ECE. And we actually bought a house in Denver because we really wanted them to graduate from Denver Public Schools. We believe uh, so much in public education. I'm also an educator, so I've been a teacher, I've been a principal, I've supervised principals, done professional development, worked on finance and operations at the district level, been a chief academic officer, and then our family moved to Denver when I became the CEO for KIPP Colorado Schools, which is a public charter school network in Denver Public Schools. And then for the last four years, I was the president and CEO of Colorado I Have a Dream Foundation, which is a nonprofit in Denver that offers after-school programming, summer programming, wraparound services for families, and one-on-one mental health therapy. And through that program, we worked with students from 38 different DPS schools. And so as a parent, as an educator, as a nonprofit leader, I've been deeply involved in what's been going on with DPS and haven't been satisfied with what's happening. Uh, now, I have to ask you, you were a president of a teacher's union yes. for a while, a couple years, and then you go on to leading one of the nation's foremost charter school organizations. How does one go, and I don't just mean logistically, but also sort of from a, 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 a mindset from being head of a teacher's union, which is not necessarily very pro-school choice of charters, into being the leader of KIPP Charters? Yes, yeah, so... I was president of the teachers union in the early 2000s, got my 
master's degree in educational leadership and organizations and my principal license in California. And my husband, as part of his PhD program, got uh, placed in Chicago. And so when I moved to Chicago, I really wanted to be a principal, applied with Chicago Public Schools, and I wasn't in their principal's pool. They said, oh, well, you're going to have to spend a few years and then hopefully something will open up. And my friend said, you know, there's this thing called charter schools and there's one opening in Gary, Indiana. Would you maybe you should try that and see what you want to do. And so I applied for the job and I got it. And at that point, I I didn't really know about charter schools, aside from the fact that we had there was flexibilities, we could we could think about curriculum and our how we wanted to set up our model. And so that's how I got initially started in charter schools. And it was an amazing experience. I got to work with families. I got to create the school with families. And I loved every minute of it. And worked my way up in that organization, held a number of different jobs, actually got to look and work in charter schools in different states. So I really got to see how charter schools and traditional public schools interacted with one another. And then I got a call in to see if I'd be interested in applying for KIPP Colorado Schools, which is a public charter school network in Denver. And I came out and when I sat down with teachers and board members and community members and heard about how in 2000, this was in 2013, how the charters and the school district worked together, I was amazed. Mm-hmm. I had not seen that between charters and, and, and school districts in the same way I saw in Denver. And I said, this seems like an amazing opportunity. And that's why I took the job. So was it the experience of actually working in charters that made you think, okay, this is something that actually works and is beneficial for kids? It, it was. And I, what I particularly liked when I came to Denver was that I was able to see, I've had experience in charters that are working for kids, but then when I came to Denver and I saw that they had innovation schools and that they had traditional public schools and they were collaborating with one another to see what across those three type of types of governance models was working best for kids, that sold me even more. Uh, do you think Kimberly Sia, that in the last few years, let's say maybe four to five years, we have seen a continuation of that collaborative approach with charters, innovation schools, the different choice options that parents have, or has that pulled back a little bit? I think that has pulled back. I think that particularly as there has been declining enrollment in the district, as there has been changes in leadership in the district, there's become this essentially pitting of school types against one another. And at the end of the day, for me, this is part of my frustration. It's part of why I'm running for the school board. That's not right for kids. At the end of the day, Families choose the school that is going to best meet the needs of their child. And when you have adults who are arguing about governance type, that's not keeping the focus on kids. And my fundamental view when it comes to school choice is that it is about the parents' opportunity to choose a better school for their kids. We are seeing the dismal academic achievement rates in Denver public schools where you can see, for example, uh, only 40% are proficient in English, which means 60% are not. Only 30% are proficient in math, which means 70% are not, and it is still 
two and a half percentage points in both of those categories, according to the CMAS tests, uh, off from recovering the learning loss, let alone surpassing that as, as, in fairness, not many districts in this state have surpassed it. And so this brings up two issues to me, which is one, improving academic performance in traditional public schools, but also underscoring the reason why parents need to be able to make the choice if they don't feel, they don't feel that their kid is getting a quality education, whatever school they're in, they should be able to make a change. 100%. And Jimmy, I want to even highlight that 40% and 30% is average. If you break that down then by white students and students of color, those it's even a larger gap, right? So you have over 70% of white students who are proficient, but you have 20% or less of our black and Latino students who are proficient. And so that that is unacceptable. Similarly, if you look at families who are more affluent versus families who are not, there is also a huge difference there, even deeper than the students of color gap. And so I think that if a family is at a school and you have 85% of kids who are not proficient in math, they want their kid to learn math. And so they're going to say, I want to find a school where I feel those supports are happening. Part of the problem is, as a parent in the district, it's actually very, it's difficult to find that information. Mm. So I, I'm frustrated with the level of transparency about the information that is shared out with families. There is a sense, it seems, from some folks that if you have certain kinds of information that's out there, what I would say is just comparing schools, that this puts them into a kind of competition that does not belong in the education space, that you shouldn't have any sort of a, of a market, if you will, and not necessarily a literal market, but a chance for parents to see comparisons and to make decisions as to what they want to do with their kids because – the the idea of competition in education is sort of anathema that it's every kid should get and or every school should get the same amount of money uh, if they are a traditional public school and maybe you don't give as much to charter schools or what have you um, that that there's this notion of if you have competition it's bad for for kids in schools but the reality is if you're giving every school the same amount of money, you don't have the same students at every school. So if I'm a parent and my child is a multilingual learner, and so I want to be at a school that I know is going to help my student be, to become proficient in English and to be able to move on and succeed, first of all, that school is going to need additional financial resources, additional staffing resources to meet the needs of the, those multilingual learners and if I can't figure out how those students are performing academically, if I can't find how many Spanish-speaking teachers you have at that school who are going to be able to help with English language development, I think that that's part of the problem. So I don't see that as competition. I, I see that as information. So one of the issues that has come up, and I, had a, I found it to be a really fascinating discussion with your opponent in this race, the incumbent Scott Balderman, where we had some differing views on areas that included stu- the idea of student-based budgeting, mm-hmm. which is the notion that you have the money sort of follow the kids so that if you have a, a school that has more students there, then they get it, essentially more money because they have more kids and the, and the, the budgeting follows the student. Uh, versus the idea that, okay, this school needs more resources because maybe they're lower economic, they have more kids who are on uh, uh, free and reduced lunch, and so forth. 
and, and there's this sense from folks like Scott Balderman that you need to change the model and go in that latter direction because of those kids that seem to be left behind as opposed to, let's say, providing that money based on the choice of parents to say, I'm going to send my kid to that school. Where do you fall on that discussion? And I may not be fully expressing the view here, but where are you at? So I support student-based budgeting, and the reason that I support it is because across the state of Colorado, it's an open enrollment state. Any parent in the state of Colorado, by law, can choose to send their child to any school, public school, and those dollars follow that student. And so, and the reason those dollars follow that student is because it supports the needs of that student. And so if we were to create kind of a baseline of every school needs this amount of money to serve students, and then we're going to give them a little extra depending upon the needs of those schools, that is not necessarily going to cover all of your bases. That's not necessarily going to truly represent what's happening with the students at the school because if the demographics don't match, if they, if they're great point in Denver right now, there's been a huge influx of migrants to the schools. And those students have much different needs at some of the schools that they're being placed into um, than the current student population. But if that if we were in this model of not doing student based budgeting and having the dollars follow the student and the needs of those students, we wouldn't be able to provide the services we need to provide. I, I think, though, there is a valid point to be raised. And I'm curious your thought on this, Kimberly, see a candidate for school board that. If you have a school that is more impoverished, has more kids on free and reduced lunch, who may have more difficult home circumstances, and you just provide the same amount because of the based on the number of students, the same amount that you would get in another school on a percentage basis, if you will, um, or, or per capita. When you look at that aspect, though, there is a, a case to be made that some schools will be underfunded because they don't have as much resources as they need for that particular population. So how do you address that? Yeah. So we know that all schools don't have enough money as right. it is right now. And I, when you're looking at the populations of students, there is an opportunity to look at where are there additional funds at the district level that we could potentially then further distribute out beyond the student-based budgeting? Mm -hmm. This is an issue for me in terms of transparency around the district budget. As a member of the public, trying to find detailed information about how money is being spent at the district level is very difficult to find. It's very generalized and not broken down um, on the district website. And then for school-based budgeting, I can see all the budgets for the schools, but I can't see what that breaks down to. I can't tell you how many teachers there are, what they're teaching. I can't tell, mm. are there additional curricular resources, technology resources, all of those types of things. And so before I can really answer your question about how do we then get more money there, I actually need to understand exactly what's happening with our budget. So in that regard, you're getting at transparency. Is that are, – are those data points things that if elected to the board, you would want to advocate, okay, we need to start making this publicly available? Yes, 100 percent, because that is how we fig figure out do schools have the resources they need. Uh, along these same lines, we have schools that have PTAs that raise hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And, it, and however – 
because PTAs are 501c3s and they're a separate entity, they mm-hmm. don't they're not required to report out their budgeting in the same time, which I totally support. And I think it's great that schools can raise that type of money. What I want to know is then what are the additional resources those schools are getting? So we as a district can think about, okay, for schools that don't have families who can raise that kind of money, where do we need to bring in those resources? So again, that's just a transparency piece of we want to support all of our schools but we have to and ensure all of our students have the resources they need. But if we don't actually know mm-hmm. the detailed resources at the school, it's hard to make a decision as a board member. Let's talk about transparency on a bigger level. Uh, you have this issue of data transparency. We have concerns, and I wrote about this regarding Jefferson County Schools and the state legislature, concerns about parents not being notified regarding very personal things for their kids that are happening in schools, where there's this idea that parents should be kept in the dark on some things, which I think is just a reprehensible viewpoint. To the school board and going behind closed doors and executive sessions, including shape and policy, and then in one instance, and then fighting in court to keep it quiet and and, and uh, from releasing it from the, to the media until finally it got to the point where there was a recognition we have to do this and so they did uh, finally release that particular executive session but there are other things that we've been denied in, in terms of transparency about the board to financial entanglements and uh, different legal settlements and so forth involving board members Talk to us big picture about this transparency issue because Denver seems to be one of the worst representations of transparency in anything in government I've ever seen. I 100% agree with you. I think that transparency at that large, at that high level is unacceptable and it has broken so much trust with our community. I think about the executive sessions that, that ha- the executive session that happened and in my mind, this is going to sound really basic, but as a board member, you should know when you can and cannot be in an executive session. There was a policy proposed during this executive session, discussed, and came, they came out and approved it. Right. Under the Sunshine Laws in Colorado, you should know that you're not allowed to do that. And so there, that raises questions for me just around how, how are board members being trained? How are they understanding their role as board members? How are they understanding what needs to be shared out with the public? And if we continue to have this lack of transparency, we're not going to be able to rebuild trust. We're not going to be able to make the shifts that we need to make around academic outcomes, around school safety, around ensuring our students are graduating and prepared for the world beyond high school. And families actually are going to continue to leave the district because that is what I'm hearing as I'm out talking to folks is that they are so frustrated with the dysfunction that's happening in DPS that they're leaving. We are talking with Kimberly Sia, who's running for District 1 in Denver Public Schools Board of Education races here in Denver, Colorado. We're going to take a break. We'll pick up the conversation on the other side in the Jimmy Sangenberger Show. News Talk 710 KNUS. Grooving back with a little fat function, P-H-A-T fat function, as we continue. Well run dry is this tune, and I got to tell you, 
when it comes to Denver Public Schools, the well has never run dry, at least for me, these past few years. And guess what? I don't think that it is going to dry up anytime soon, even if there are changes to the Denver School Board. Welcome back to the Jimmy Sangenberger Show, News Talk 710 KNUS, continuing our conversations with the candidates, with Kimberly Sia, who is running for the school board in Denver in District 1. And uh, Kimberly, we had a great discussion about school choice, some interesting thoughts there. Uh, One of the big things that we are noticing, though, and you touched on this a little bit, is declining enrollment that we have seen. In fact, statewide, we have seen some 27,000 kids leave the public school system since COVID. That's a staggering number when you think about it. But you're seeing that kind of thing going on in Denver, too, amidst some of the issues that we were talking about with academics, concerns over school safety that we'll get to in a moment, and so forth. And and now there's this issue of closing schools. And they punted at the board earlier this year in terms of uh, going and in, in forward with the decision that they were supposed to make to close 12 schools. Didn't do it. What's your take on the issue of declining enrollment and school closures? I think that the board, the current board, is just pushing out the inevitable. We are going to have to either consolidate or close schools because from a financial perspective, the district cannot sustain the support that they've been providing to the schools uh, that are under-enrolled or that do not have the resources that they need. And so moving forward, If I was on the school board, I would want us to really sit down with communities and start to think about how can we work together to be able to make these hard decisions. And it might not be based on the number of students at the school. If you have a, there are small schools that are able to support the needs of their students. And if they have everything they need, their students are doing well academically, they are doing well social emotionally. That doesn't mean you're automatically on the closure list. But by not setting criteria for how we're going to discuss closing schools or consolidating schools and by not starting this process sooner, you have what happened last year. You have lists that start to come out. You have communities that have no idea whether or not that school is going to be opening or closing. And then you have families who start to leave. Or in the case this year, some of the schools that were on that original 12 school list, they saw lower enrollment this year because they don't know what's happening. Mm. And so we want our students to stay in Denver Public Schools. Goes back to what I was saying earlier about transparency. Let's be transparent about the process. Let's talk to families about how we're going to do this. And let's not wait till the last minute. Let's make it a 12 to 18 month discussion so that this time next year, we know if those changes are going to have to happen. Kimberly, Sia, when we look at changes that have to happen, we cannot ignore school safety and discipline. We have seen school shootings on in near campuses. We have seen weapons come onto campuses. Earlier, we talked a good bit about all this with John Youngquist, who's running at large. But I want to get your view on the broader issues of school safety with 13 schools now having school resource officers back in them. And when it comes to discipline as well, I mean, I remember going back to October of 2021. Kids were coming back from COVID. They had been home. They were away from social situations. They were deprived of so much, leading to significant mental health issues that we are still seeing to this day. And it seems to not be getting any better in that regard. But 
it was so bad as far as discipline. I was already hearing from teachers. I think I was the first one to criticize the discipline matrix. And I believe it was October of 2021, well before the last several months when we have seen more attention in the wake of East High School and McAuliffe uh, International School. And when we look at this issue, teachers and staff seem to feel, not seem to feel, they feel like they don't have the tools. They know they don't. I 100% agree with you, and it is, it's what I've actually experienced with my own child in, in their school at, at an elementary school level in terms of just the level of violence that is happening. And it's not because the child is violent on their own accord kind of thing. It's because they have other issues that have not been addressed. And so, unfortunately, my own daughter was the victim of of what was happening there. And we are so fortunate to be able to have a school staff that got the resources they needed for the child who was struggling so that the problem was addressed. That said, that is not happening at all of our schools. And if you have teachers or if you have principals who don't have the proper training in terms of how do you de-escalate a violent student, how do you proactively give students the tools they need to calm themselves down or interact with their peers? I mean, even just basic teamwork or how you get along with someone else when you're frustrated. Those are the types of things that I think all of our schools should be focused on. We talk so much about the school resource officers. And to your point, that's in 13 high schools. There's 200 schools in DPS. And I can tell you, elementary, middle, high school, they are all dealing with increasing levels of violence. And so as I think about that, and as I talk to families, and as I talk to educators, We want to think about how can we start to address that sooner and before students get to the point where they are so angry or they they themselves feel so bullied that now I'm going to bring a weapon to school and I'm going to caught I'm going to have such a violent act that it's going to cause what happened at East High School. Are there ways we can think about that? Additionally, as we talk about the discipline matrix, I think that. The other problem, besides the fact that we need to be more proactive, is the fact that when a student has these behavior behaviors, principals don't always know how to react. The discipline matrix is so vague. Which, just for folks who, who aren't too familiar, the discipline matrix basically lays out when teach uh, when teachers or, or staff are required to do things like expel a student or can expel a student, whether they can or are required to call the police or not, what other tools they're able or uh, steps they're able to take in that regard. And it is woefully lacking. Let's just say that. Go ahead. Yes, I would agree with you. So I would like to revise the discipline matrix. And while that is not the discipline matrix itself is not a policy, there is a discipline policy. And the discipline matrix is more on the operational side, something the superintendent and his team makes decisions on. But the board can provide input on that. Yeah. The board can say, you know what, this this actually is not aligning by what we are required in policy and by state law to do around discipline. There is a hesitancy on this board under this 
policy approach called policy governance to get involved in some of these operational issues, even in a school board meeting. Outside of a school board meeting, it makes sense. You shouldn't be gathering up students together and parents and have a couple of school board members browbeat a JROTC head. By the way, that happened at Manual High School by an outgoing school board member. That is that is unacceptable and not allowed as an approach. But school board meetings, if you're going to be examining, like to me, it makes no sense to have such an, a hands-off approach on policy for some of these critical issues in a lot of areas it makes sense have that operational separation but sometimes there are things that really need to be addressed and on the agenda i think i completely agree with you and i'll actually use the discipline matrix as an example in 2022 the the current discipline matrix it had there were changes that were made after the sros were taken out in 2020 the the superintendent and his team made several changes. It finally got back to the school board. It was on a consent agenda. It got approved. No one discussed it. No one talked about it. You can go and find it on board docs. There's a few red lines that are changed. And we haven't revisited it again. So to your point, the board could have pulled it off the consent agenda and said, you know what? I don't actually think that this is going to solve our problem. And similarly, on the policy governance point, in It is the board's responsibility to pass policy. I understand that. It is the superintendent's job to do that, to operationalize that. I also believe, though, that it is the board's job. Once you have passed a policy, we need to make sure that that policy is working. And that is something I think is currently lacking is this level of accountability for the superintendent and through the superintendent with his team around we pass this policy Did it work? And again, I'm going to go back to when the SROs were taken out in 2020 and a policy was written that they'd be taken out, there'd be a school safety plan put in place. And then we really didn't hear about it again until the shootings that happened at East in the last school year. And so if you had a if you had a policy that said these things were going to happen, let's bring it back. Let's talk about it. Let's say in the in the district could have said, yeah. we don't have the resources we need. And I, I could give multiple examples where policies ha- yeah. has happened earlier this year. I know before East, they were starting to look at the school safety. There was the policy on covid and they were reevaluating. OK, let's focus on what's happening with safety and, and some of those issues. But. There was very little work and certainly the right approach when it comes to SROs and so forth until after East High School. And it it is unacceptable to me to have a tragedy like that be the impetus for a school board change. But the biggest reason why is that crystallized for parents. A lot of what on this program we've been talking about for years has been going on in terms of safety, in terms of discipline in Denver public schools. And, and it is it is that kind of thing that underscores as well the problems with dysfunction. When we have a dysfunctional school board as we have had for the past at least few years on the DPS board, it leads to an inability to address a lot of these issues in any real way. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about that aspect of this whole situation because you want to step into it as a school board member if elected, Kimberly Sia. Yes, I do, because I have a huge belief that Denver Public Schools can be an amazing school district. It's had every every school district has its ups and downs and we know that there's going to be challenges. And 
I think that the board has to set the bar for excellence. The board has to be the role models for what is going to happen in our district and how we're going to lead. And what I have seen on the board over the last few years is that there seems to be a lot of individual interests that come forward for the board. So it becomes the latest trend or whatever you want to call it in terms of let's focus on this issue. Now we're going to focus on this issue. Now we're going to bring this policy forward. And that doesn't feel cohesive. And then you have folks who don't agree with one another and you have the infighting that starts to happen. And that that's not good for kids. At the end of the day, the board needs to say, is this discussion we're having going to benefit students. And you have some board members who are more vocal than others. You hear from them more. They're in the news more. And then you have other board members who sit back and you don't hear from them. But in my opinion, sitting back and being quiet contributes to the dysfunction. If you are not leading and saying, we need to stop and we need to bring this back to kids, you're just as guilty as folks who are the ones that are in the news every day as well. And so I think that if I was to be on the board, I would want us as a board to say, look, we're in this together. Let's find one or two things, probably school safety and outcomes, because those are, for me, those are very important right now. And I think for our community, that's what I'm hearing And let's figure out how we can work together and not go off on these tangents of introducing new things not aligned to that. I want to ask you about one more issue as we wind down our conversation, um, and that is accountability. Obviously, elections are one way to hold uh, elected officials accountable. But when we're talking about staff like the superintendent – Voters don't get to have a say on the superintendent. You can make your voice heard at the ballot box, but even then, you can't really necessarily tell. Although we've seen a lot of parents outraged over the uh, fact that Alex Marrero, the current superintendent, got a raise um, in an effort to, amidst all this dysfunction, I think keep him on the board and or on board with the district and not leave. Um, but then, and, and it wasn't just a raise for him; it was also increasing the base salary for a future superintendent. But he did get a two and a half percent, I think it is, uh, performance pay bonus because of a weighted average of eighty-one point something percent performance. When meanwhile we're still two and a half percentage points down in both English and math compared to the pandemic uh, of twenty-nine pre-pandemic numbers of twenty nineteen. What's going on here in that regard? How would you hold the superintendent accountable? I believe that that is one of the three jobs the board has, right? They create policy. They're the fiscal agents for the district of the $1.3 billion budget. And they have one employee that they have to hold accountable. If you look at the metrics that were used to evaluate the superintendent, They're based on the six in statements that the board has, and they were created several years ago. And I don't believe in changing what you're getting evaluated on all the time, because then it's hard to have a baseline and and then to make a change. But that bonus was for things like we kept the schools open because one of the metrics was created during covid hasn't been changed yet, and it is how many times did we have to close schools as a result of the COVID pandemic? And so if we're looking at this bonus, you're 100% right. It was not based on the academic outcomes of students. 
additionally, around safety, it was met in terms of the fact that we had a lower response time because that was the goal was to decrease the response time when there's a safety crisis. There's a lot of other safety issues going on that were not part of that evaluation. And so I would really like to think about how are we ensuring that when we're evaluating the superintendent, it is relevant to what is happening now in our schools. Yeah, I'm at a point where I would like to see both Superintendent Marrero and Aaron Thompson, the district's attorney, go. But that's for another discussion um, and, and not necessarily something in that case. That is for a board member anyway uh, in the in the latter instance. But we do have to leave it there. Kimberly Sia, let me ask you a final question. Where can folks go to learn more about you and your campaign? And what's a final word for them? You can find out more about my campaign at www.sia, S-I-A, for, F-O-R, dpsstudents.com. And my final word is, I believe that the current DPS board is failing our students and that it is time for a change. Given the experience that I have as a parent, as an educator, as a community leader, I'm ready to come listen to our families, listen to our educators, listen to our students, and really make DPS the district I know that it can be. Kimberly, see, I really appreciate you taking the time and coming into the studio, especially as we do have, uh, it doesn't look too bad out there yet, but a little bit of snow falling onto the ground. <laughs> it is. And I'm not looking forward to going out there. <laughs> yeah, me, me neither. Thank you so much for joining yes, us. Really have appreciate a great day. it. All right, once again, Kimberly Sia joining us, running for District 1 in Denver Public Schools. We're going to take a quick break. We'll have our final couple of minutes on the other side as we wrap up this edition of the Jimmy Sangenberger Show on Newstalk 710 KNUS. Wrap it up and I'll take it. We're wrapping it up on the Jimmy Sangenberger Show, Newstalk 710 KNUS. Alexa and Littleton texting in. Great interviews, Jimmy. It will be years before the DPS board is not dysfunctional. I think you are quite right. But my thanks to Kimberly Sia for joining us in studio. John Youngquist earlier, both candidates for the Denver School Board. On Monday, 5.30 p.m. Ask Jimmy's Harmonica the final one on Stefan Tubb show as I come in studio as part of his farewell tour, his final week of the Stefan Tubb show on 710 KNUS. It will be a blast at 530. Be sure to tune in then, and I'll be back next Saturday. Same time, same place with more engaging, intelligent talk. Sang style, 710 KNUS. Snow is starting to fall, expecting 5 to 11 inches in the forecast as we skip through fall. And Peter Boyles is here in studio with his show from 9 to noon. Peter, good morning. Hey, James. How are you, man? It, uh, it's, it's cold outside. Yeah, yeah, it is. What happened to fall? It's gone. Yeah. No, I don't, I'm not sure. It's not gone yet. I think it's but, next week we yeah, get fall. Yeah. No, yeah, I think anybody that's been back east knows that that's a fall. Yeah. I got a minute. So uh, what's go. what's coming up on your show today? Well, Nine Charles minutes. Johnson's in studio in an hour from now, the legendary quarterback of the 1990 CU Buffs National Champions. We did a television show together, and it floored everybody. He's remarkable. Mm-hmm. He's running for CU region at large. Really? Okay. So CJ's here. But I do want to talk about yesterday, Sydney Powell reverses herself and said she was extorted. 
don't you think those prosecutors go, Sydney on Monday, she got the sweetest Rico deal. She goes outside. I think she's legitimately psychotic. I think she's socially inept, and I, I don't know what happens next. Jenna Ellis, who of course was in and no out of here, there. I, I she was gonna she was gonna fold. Who's next? Yeah, I don't know. That's the question because there are so many defendants. There's in Georgia. There are sixteen more. But the Mark Meadows development in the oh. national case of Jack Smith is you pretty watch. fascinating too. He's all. He's saying that he lied in his book. Oh yeah. Well, but like that. Remember, because it's printed, doesn't make it true. No, that is a great. Reminder for us to wrap up on. Oh, Peter Boyles, the man's the 9 to noon. Thanks. All right. Be sure to tune in then. Stay warm. It is cold outside. We'll see if the weather's nice. It'll be up at Dougie G's and Thornton. The VFW post there sitting with the band. We'll see what happens. Have a great one. God bless America.